You're listening to the Break Free Podcast, where we show up, tell the truth, and do the work so that we can live God's best for our lives. Let's jump right in. Today's guest on the Break Free Podcast is Kwesi Gaharo from the south side of Chicago. Kwesi is a poet, self-published author, and he has his own foundation dedicated to empowering you through art in the face of adversity. Inspired by the tragic loss of his brother, Kwesi wrote and forgave his brother's killer, a journey documented in his critically acclaimed book of poetry, Innocent Rage. Quasi has performed literature worldwide. He spent a year abroad studying in an advanced literary program in Oxford, England. With a diverse portfolio, he has produced TV and film projects, including Kanye West's congratulatory videography and an award-winning independent film. Quasi's talents extend to on-camera work, where he has interviewed top Hollywood stars at premieres and red carpet events. And today he's here with us to talk about forgiving what you cannot fix. Quasi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Quasi, you've had an incredible journey for over the last 30 years. You've been sharing your story um, and it's really shaped your path and purpose. And you've been advocating for the importance of art and creative self-expression as a solution to gun violence prevention. I know your story personally of how your brother was um, murdered um, due to his courageous act to protect his friend, but could you walk our listeners through um, what happened that day on January 11th, 1992? Yes, um, it was actually an unusually warm winter day in Chicago on that Saturday, January 11th, 1992. It's about 12 noon. Lamont was at the mall doing what teenagers do, shopping, buying some sneakers, some clothes, um, and, you know, maybe talking to, you know, a few females. Nonetheless, um, back on our block, Lamont's friends noticed two guys walking up and down the street. And once they approached them, as they were walking by, one of the guys said, there's nothing but G's around here. Lamont friends kept to themselves and kept it moving. Fast forward, nighttime, Lamont comes home, eats dinner with my mom about eight, nine o'clock, ask if he can go out. My mom let him go out, he meets up with his friends, you know, about eight to 12 teenagers meeting at one of their houses to watch movies, play video games, and watch music videos. As the night proceeds, everybody's like, well, we gotta help, we have to go check in at this time, early 90s, there was no cell phones. Um, so kids literally had to go home to check in to let their parents know where they were. Now, as they were checking in, Lamont and Kim was just standing on the block waiting for them to come back. Just what happened, the two guys came back in a car. The driver's name was Jonathan. The passenger, Eric. Jonathan pulled the car in front of Lamont and Kim. Eric got out of the car, approached Kim. Kim thought Eric was going to ask for direction, so she stepped back. Eric approached her again, revealing the sawed-off tool-gauge shotgun. At this point, Lamont stepped in to protect her, told her to step back. Then Eric turns his attention from Kim to Lamont. I was like, yo, we got something to talk about. Jonathan pulled off, came home to my mom's house, banging on the door, saying, Diane, Diane, someone kidnapped Lamont. They took him three miles from our home. During the three-mile drive, they made Lamont strip of all of his clothing, took him to Dixmore, 142nd and Lincoln Street. Eric made Lamont get out of the car, placed him on his knees, his face. The right side of his head had a hole in it the size 
of a grapefruit. His face, the ear on the right side of his head, barely attached. His face, his eyes, his eyes were still open. They had bulged out of his head and his head had became disfigured from the gunshot blast. His face, blood had ran from his nose to his mouth while blood on the moor table sat in puddles from the head wound. His face, Lamotte didn't even look like him. His face, only if you could see his face. Now that was the first poem I've ever been. During the murder trial, the prosecution had to prepare us for court because those photos of my brother and at the crime scene would be coming out. So he wanted to mentally prepare myself and my mother uh, for this particular part of the trial that there was no outburst on our behalf in court. He shared that photo of my brother with the gunshot wound to his head, which is actually in my debut book, an anthology of poetry entitled Innocent Rage. And two weeks later, um, they caught Eric and Jonathan. When they caught them, Jonathan had on Lamont's pants and gym shoes. Though we got justice, I still was not at peace, and I was looking to find peace. One of the very few times that I visited my brother's grave site, I was still looking for guidance and understanding and asking my brother. I, would, I physically wanted to be with him. And I said, bruh, talking to him, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to use this to, 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 to heal, to get better? And so my spirit said, forgive. So at my brother's great site, I said, I forgive Eric Taylor and Jonathan Jenkins for the murder of my younger brother. And then my spirit led me to say, I said, what else am I to do? How am I to, to really move past this? My spirit said, right. So I wrote Eric and Jonathan asking them their permission if I could come meet them to forgive them. Before we get into that, thank you for sharing the story and everything that happened um, with your brother. I can imagine that was, like you said, just a tumultuous time, three years going to court, like you said, once a month. They find your brother's killer with your brother's clothes on that day. You had to see that picture of your brother, like you said. I'm sure that's an image that you haven't been able to really get out of your mind. You forgave your brother's killers and that moment you said it came to you when you went to visit your brother's grave site because you didn't have peace and it came to your mind to forgive them, right? So let's talk about that. What was that process like? Walk us through it. I wrote both of them, asking them their permission to meet them. Uh, Jonathan didn't give me his permission to meet him. Nonetheless, he did call. And I forgave him over the phone. Eric, the trigger man, he gave me permission to meet with him because um, I wrote them twice before they finally called. October of 1995 and then November of 1995, basically four weeks later. And Eric called. And at the time I was living with my mother, she was the one who answered the phone, accepted the collect phone call. And that particular moment with my mother and myself wasn't pleasant. I'll, I'll share this with you. This is actually the letter that I wrote Eric and Jonathan um, in prison, asking their permission. This letter was written October 26, 1995. This letter is in my debut book, An Anthology of Poetry, entitled Innocent Rage. Eric, what's up, bruh? I am Quasi. I am writing you this letter because I would like to meet and forgive you for the murder of my younger brother, James Lamar Ford. During our meeting, if you choose, you do not say or admit anything. I would just like the opportunity to express my personal and family pain and in turn, make peace with you. I pray for you 
and your family that you are doing well under your conditions. I also pray and hope you accept my invitation. I want to do this for myself so I can end the chapter on the mock's death and move on progressively with my life. Also, for my continual healing and to let you know it's okay. That I understand your pain. That I understand your pain and struggle as a Black man in America. Please give us the opportunity to meet and perhaps we may be able to develop a relationship where we can help you your tumultuous times. Sincerely, crazy. P.S. If you accept this invitation, feel free to call me Collect at. He called Collect. I went to meet him and I forgave him. What was that conversation like when you met, when you went to meet with him? Um, it was surreal. Uh, he didn't admit whether he did it or not. Well, he actually stated, can I help him find the real killers of my younger brother? Because he said, well, we didn't do it. We, um, we didn't do it. I was like, well, how did you get my brother's clothes? Oh, we got the clothes from a crackhead. And I said, well, I understand where you are and what's going on with you. Um, however, Kim Lamont's friend, the last person that saw Lamont alive, saw you and Eric, I mean, you and Jonathan take Lamont. They killed two people during the month of January of 92 and they attempted to kill a third person. The third person survived the gunshot wound. His testimony also helped convict them. But it was Kim's testimony that was the, 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 the driving, she was the driving witness because she saw them kidnap and take Lamont. And then plus Jonathan had on uh, Lamont's pants. And then I also asked Eric, I said, we were in court for three and a half years. When the judge gave you the opportunity to speak on your behalf, you didn't say anything. And he said, well, um, my attorney advised me not to say anything. I was like, but you hired your attorney. If you know you didn't do something, you're going to speak up on your behalf in court. But nonetheless, I just listened because I know he was spread. I know that he knew he was facing life in prison. And he saw the humbleness in heart to even want to reach out to him to forgive him. So he thought he could utilize me to help him find, quote unquote, the, 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 the killers or whatever. So I just listened. I How did it end, Quasi? And did you get the, the, you know, the resolve that you were looking for that day? Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, this, this, <laughs> this is truly a movie scene, but unless we had conversation, um, I'll put my fist to the glass. He put his fist to the glass and we were cool. Like for real. And I visited him several times after that. One of my visits, Eric shared with me, he was like, man, you've come to see me more than my family has, you know? And see, and when you in court with someone for three and a half years, you learn everything about them. Like Eric actually came from a two parent. He had just started a job at Thornton High School where Lamont was attending. Eric, his friend, I mean, Jonathan, his friend, he was the one who had the trouble past. He had a criminal background as long as Schindler's List. And he was influenced by hanging out with Jonathan. And that's how Eric got involved in the street life and those several things that they did during the, during the month of January of 92. That's good, Quasi. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing that, you know, you were visiting them more than even people that they had relationships with prior, right? Their family and so on. And I just yes. applaud you for your willingness um, and your courage, you know, to have that conversation and to continue visiting. 
Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Kwesi. Yes. No, I just wanted to make sure that I was really in an authentic place and I wasn't just doing this just as, oh, I did it one time, then I never have to see him again. So let's talk about that, Kwesi, because, you know, there's somebody listening right now who's lost their son or lost their brother, just like you. And grief is taking them out. I know you said, you know, you told me before that you grew up in church. So you understood that, you know, forgiveness was a foundational principle, you know, in your house growing up. So you had that to go back to. But even still with that, how were you able to get to the place where the grief didn't take you out? I went through this moment in my life of hate where I hated Black people, that I didn't want to be around other Black people because all of the pain and hurt that was caused to myself and my family was caused by other Black people. You know, I hated Black men because my brother was killed by two Black men. I hated Black women because my brother sacrificed his life for a Black woman, his female friend. I hated my mom for teaching us to be, quote unquote, goody two-shoes. I hated myself because growing up, we shared room. If Lamont didn't clean up, I beat him up. So I thought me beating him up, or when I say beat up, I ain't like we like, you know, black eyes or anything of that nature. But I tossed him around. I pushed him around. And I thought because of my tussling him around and somewhat bullying him, you know, to clean up, I made him passive and got in the car. And so I blamed myself for Lamont's death. And I hated myself for Lamont's death. That I thought about committing suicide, but through poetry, Writing saved my life because I turned to drugs, physical relationship with women, drinking. Like I would pull up in the parking lot at court and I would take a pool of a blunt or take a hit off a drink to go in to mentally be prepared to face what I was about to face because it was just such such an arduous time um, in my life. Identifying that, that pain, that hurt, that trauma, processing it, then writing it allowed me to heal it allowed me to forgive those which i've hated it allowed me to forgive myself forgive myself and writing poetry empowered me to write eric and jonathan how was poetry introduced to you quasi already writing before this happened and then you you know you were able to identify okay i'm gonna lean into this a little bit more or i discovered it in this process what um what, what were the, the raindrops to my writing was a chance encounter with a woman um, at a nightclub in Chicago. And I had a desire to, to, to meet her. And so I would write her my feelings because when I would talk to her on the phone, I wasn't clear on conveying those feelings. But sure. when I wrote, I was able to convey those feelings. And then when I started writing her, I started writing about the pain and hurt and not dealing with the hate regarding black people, black men, my mom and things of that nature. So I would go out and read that at poetry. And these wasn't poems. This was just, I feel, I just talked about my hate. I wasn't writing poems. I was just writing. I was journaling. And I would go out to poetry readings and journal and read what I journal. And then at each poetry set, when I would read, they said, come back, come back. And then people kept inviting me out to share. And the more I did it, the more peace I felt. And then I saw other poets read and perform, which inspired me to want to really get in the space. But nonetheless, when the prosecution attorney showed me 
Lamont's picture with the gunshot wound to his head, I would look at that picture for hours at a time, days at a time, literally just sitting in my room. And then I penned my first poem, His Face. I love how it started with you writing your feelings to a woman, right? That you felt like you couldn't necessarily say, but when you put pen to paper, you felt like that was the most authentic expression of how you actually felt. Here it is 30 you know, years later and you're still you know, writing poetry and you're taking your poetry into classrooms and traveling and sharing your personal story. What has been one of the most memorable moments over the last 30 years of sharing your personal story and poetry with other people? Um, I had two experiences, one here in Chicago, when I was doing my MTVP, Minimize Thoughts of Violence Through Poetry, at Oglesby Elementary School on the South Side. And one of my students, she was in eighth grade. She was thinking about committing suicide. The teacher called me this particular night and said, Quasi, can you talk to her that she doesn't do this particular act? And through my conversation with her, it saved her life. She didn't commit suicide. And the teacher was very impressed with my work. Um, when I moved to LA um, to pursue turning my poetry book into a feature film, um, I was invited to speak at, in Bakersfield, California, at a high school there, at a gun violence prevention conference. And it just so happened this particular day that I was there, this kid, Seen, uh, 16 years of age, Latino kid, he was going to commit suicide that day. He had written the he had written the letter to his mother, what he was going to do and why he felt so alone in life. He did commit suicide because he heard my story that particular day. I learned about this because the administrator who invited me out to the conference, the mom called him to let him know whoever that poet was in my son's class today saved his life because he was prepared to come home to commit suicide. Praise God. And I recently, yes, I recently talked to this, this administrator, Kevin Keyes, Bakersfield, uh, uh, California. And he said the young man, he went to the Marines, he's married with several kids. And that was refreshing, you know, to know that yes. through my work, I'm able to touch touch people and, and inspire them to, to want to live because I shared with them my thoughts of suicide and how I wanted to, I didn't think I could cope a deal, but writing poetry saved my life. And one of the things that I share, I share that we can come back from a burn heart. We can come back from uh, being disappointed. But when you commit suicide, that is a final act. There's no coming back from that. So whatever you're going through, you can get help. Talk to somebody more than anything, find it within yourself to write because we all have access to a pen and pad and journaling and writing helped me. And I am someone who had no desire to be a poet. I thought it was for intellects. I thought it was, it was boring and I thought it was just for, for, for intellectuals. And I didn't consider myself an intellectual. I didn't consider myself, you know, engaging, you know, but nonetheless, the very thing that I like the least has made me who I am today. That's so good, Quasi. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. And I relate to you on that. I didn't, you know, I wasn't interested in writing or speaking um, at all. 
But I found that um, the more that I journaled it and I just kind of disciplined myself, I guess, in writing, um, it helped me a lot too with a lot of different issues that I faced growing up and even as an adult, you know, and the speaking thing, I just keep leaning into it. <laughs> you know, I'm called to it and I lean into it more mm-hmm. and more, but there's so much power in um, just self-expression and authentically sharing your story. Do you have a poem that you can share with us? Yes. Um, I'll share the piece entitled One Shot Away um, About Me Wanting to um, commit suicide and this is the very thing poetry the thing that I didn't think I could do or become is the very thing that saved my life this piece is entitled one shot away sometimes sometimes I feel like I'm one shot away one shot away from the beginning of a new day a day that would be forever and I would never have to worry about being one shot away because Lamont was one shot away from being right here today. But I know if I take this one shot away, I will be away lasting. You will be passing me by. Like why? Why? Quasi, you had so many skills and you was using them to help build in the community where there's no unity amongst my people. But I'm not trying to make this a secondhand sequel because I know I'm just one shot away. And I know and I know some of y'all don't want to be listening. So you're going to be missing my view. But I'm laying minds on the line for you because I'm just trying to wake you up, you man. Because I love you, you man. And I have a hold on you, you man, like water, like water does to land. And I know you could be one shot away from taking my one shot away. But I don't feel no man. But I don't fear no man but God and the man in the mirror. Because I am the man in the mirror that I need to fear. And because uh, I know I'm just one shot away. And I mix all of my shots. And I always get to what I've got. And I know you miss 100% of the shots you never take. But this one for sure, I will the will to make. But I know if I take this one shot away from me, I take my one shot away from me because my will does will to see the will that I will to be. And though at times, though at times I get disconcerted and weakened, being of this physical being makes me weaken. But I'm not going to stop seeking the peace and this one shot away from me. So God, God, please, please stop me because you understand the power of the mind and mind can hide me line at the end. But I ain't trying to end this. Because I'm going to be in your life like the sun. So close yet so far away. Because I know I'm just one shot away. Crazy. That was so good. That was so good. Yes. (laughs) I was just thinking I got to give you some snaps. (laughs) I was just thinking that. If you listen, you better give Crazy some snaps. Because that was good. Yeah, yeah. That was good. At this particular time. And thank God my mom didn't believe in guns in the home. But I was literally about to walk to I-57, a bridge in the city of Chicago, 127th Street. That intersection between uh, Ashland and and, and, and um, Pritt, I-57. I was going to jump off the bridge and to be hit by a Mack truck. That that's how detailed I was about planning my my suicide. 
No, I'm so glad that you're here with us today to share your story and to share your poetry with us. And Quasi, I know you believe with the right, you know, philanthropic collaboration that the arts and education, um, that arts and education will prevent senseless gun violence in America. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your vision regarding collaborating um, with, you know, philanthropic billionaires and the role of arts and education in preventing senseless gun violence in America? Yes. Um, well, as you know, one, they took prayer out of school. So when you take a greater source of energy and the divinity out of day-to-day -day life, when that happened, that was a climb of, of, of self-respect and, and respect for others. Uh, when you started taking out the arts after school programs, that increased this turmoil that we see in our communities. When the music and the music specifically, specifically by us, detail these graphic images, and violence and thoughts, and being studio gangsters and Young people hearing that, it starts to change the message of the culture that we believe these artists are doing this in real life, that our people, our young people are enacting it in real life. Like it's a video game, like, oh, I can hit reset after they kill someone. And then you find out these young brothers who commit these crimes, but when they go behind these bars, they act as soft as cotton mentally because they're not prepared it's vital to the culture of any community locally nationally or internationally one put art back in the culture provide these creative platforms from poetry to visual art to the ballet to the symphony to to act, even drumming dancing tap dancing it's going to provide young people with a creative platform to be engaged. They're not engaged, so kids could get on social media and do this mob action. We're gonna meet downtown Chicago, meet us downtown, 1,500, 2,000 kids show up. So it's important that the powers that be and also us as individual community leaders, activists, street or organizers, we find creative ways to engage are young people, but you also need the, the resources, the capital to do such, you know, because even to buy a hundred pens or a hundred pads or anything to engage them, there's a cost to that. You can have a powerful message for a movement, but if you don't have the money to support it, it could fall on deaf ears. Kwesi, are there any words of hope or advice you would give to those listening who have experienced the loss of a loved one? through gun violence and are struggling with forgiveness? I say you have to become the change you want to see. I one must become that, that I could be a light in darkness to help someone on their path regarding their personal struggle um, in this space. It's not going to be easy, you know, but what has been healing for me is the sharing process, being able to do the poetry and go out in the community and share my story with others that they too could become what they want to become by believing in themselves. So how we create change in our community, 
we must provide our young men, young teenagers, good boys, with therapy. We won't forget the pain or the hurt or the trauma, but we won't have to use it as a, a, a as a as a as a crutch to say, oh, this happened to me, so I'm going to do this. It's like I was saw something on Instagram. I was talking about the villain and the hero. They both experience pain. The villain says, someone hurt me, so I'm going to go back out and hurt others. The hero says, someone hurts me, and I'm not going to allow this to happen again to someone else. And Correct. so it's just perspective. It's not what happened to you, what's important. It's how you respond to what's happened to you that's vital. Because if you respond negatively, you can continue to perpetuate the violence in our community. If you respond positively, you become a part of the solution, an agent for change. And that's all I'm seeking to do is be an agent of change that people could look at my story and say, oh, he's been through it. He understands. He has done it. I could do it too. But once we find or see someone in our community that has faced such tumult, then we believe we can overcome that tumult and walk on water as well. Kwesi, that's so good. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your heart for gun violence prevention and your incredible story of courage and forgiveness with our listeners today. Um, please let our listeners know where they can get in contact with you and how they can get a copy of your book. You could follow me at Instagram at 2KGPR underscore, at 2KGPR underscore. So if you believe in my work, if you believe in what I'm doing, DM me at 2KGPR underscore. You can cash at me for a copy of the book. You will receive it within three to five business days. My goal is to move these 1,500 copies at $250 per copy because it is a classic. With those sales, I'm going to start the James Lemar Ford Scholarship Fund and send a kid from Thornton High School who wants to go to Central State on a four-year ride. And each year thereafter, first year, one or two students. Every year, we're going to double that for the next five to 10 years. Thank you so much, Quasi. If you enjoy the Break Free podcast and want to stay connected to Ashley, subscribe to her email list by going to theashleywinston.com and receive the number one secret to overcoming obstacles and creating a life you love for free. Within this secret, you'll discover many keys to advancing your personal and professional goals and enjoy gaining the clarity that moves you forward at warp speed. Become a part of the Break Free family by signing up today and getting the inspiration you need to reach your next level of unstoppable. Stay up to date with Ashley's latest episodes and be the first to know about new offers, products, services, and events. Simply visit theashleywinston.com 